Uh, if you do not have a Bible with you this morning, you're going to need one. We're going to go on a fast-paced tour through the book of Psalms. So uh, if you don't have a Bible and you'd like to have one, just put your hand up. Our ushers are ready. They'll give you one that you can use for the service and that you can keep if you don't have one already. And when you get your Bible out, turn to the book of Psalms. I'll give you a jump start on where we're going. Turn to the book of Psalms and hover there. Uh, we will go through a, a number of different passages from the book of Psalms this morning. Well, this morning we'll close our series on the subject of prayer. And I want you to understand clearly that we have not even come close to covering all there is to say about prayer in this series. And so naturally we will come back to this in the future. Um, I've been rediscovering prayer myself during this time in my life, and I've simply brought you along on some of that journey as we've been going through this series. I hope it's been helpful. I hope it's been encouraging. But now the real question is how we allow this to affect our faith and our relationship with our Father, and how we take up this weapon and use it to influence the situation that others are in. And how we take the things we've discovered and pass those things along to others that are searching for understanding in the area of prayer. Parents, look back on the things that we've talked about in this series on prayer. What are we going to pass along to our children? This isn't just grown-up stuff that they wouldn't understand. Most children pray more honestly than we do. What are they going to see now as they observe you praying? Backing up a step, let me ask you if they see you praying at all. Are you modeling prayer for your kids? Are you praying with your kids? It has to happen. We pray with our kids every night before bed and we use that time to teach them about prayer. Sometimes we pray and they listen. Sometimes we pray and have them repeat what we pray. We have them pray on their own. We have them pray for each other. We sometimes guide them very specifically and other times just let them go without any help or any suggestions at all. Those are very interesting times. We pray in the car every time we hear a siren or see an ambulance go by or every time we pass an accident. We pray for their day before they get on the bus to go to school. They know that prayer is an essential part of our lives. And let me just address something here that, that I've heard. There's a thought that's been expressed out there in the media by the enemies of God, and I want to acknowledge it right now. Uh, there are people around you who, if they knew you were praying with your kids, would accuse you of brainwashing them. They believe that Christian parents should not force their religion on their kids. And that is one of the most harmful and ridiculous statements that I've ever heard. And it comes straight from hell. Your children have been blessed by God by having been born into a home and family where Christ is Lord. Don't ever consider, even for a second, holding back things like prayer from your children. You point them to Christ from the moment they're born. Model what it is to live for Christ. Show them the love of God. Teach them the truth. Don't ever hold back the things that will lead them to life. Believing that we're brainwashing them by guiding them to Christ is a lie, an absolute lie. The force of darkness in our society is trying hard to take prayer out of our experience. And there's lots of evidence to support that, including the removal of prayer from our schools. But that's just part of the battle that Jesus warned us about. Satan wants to take hope away from God's creation. 
And there are very few things that offer hope as powerfully as prayer does. Just look at the irony of what we see when there's a tragedy. Suddenly, the very same people who are lobbying against prayer are offering prayer to those who are suffering. A plane crashes and people instantly start talking about and offering prayers for the victims. Yet the next day, they may get right back to supporting the idea that prayer is offensive. Deep inside every human being is an awareness of God. Every human being. Every person was created in the image of God. And so their spirits know that he is real. And often it's hopelessness or helplessness that reawakens that awareness in them. And as we look around us at the people in our lives and what they're facing, we need to act on that reality, on what we see. As followers of Christ, people connected to the power and effectiveness of prayer. We should be offering the hope that's found in prayer freely and frequently. Prayer is something that God can and will use in a big way through us. Uh, I recently saw this in action in our own lives. Our relationships with our neighbors on our street have been progressing well. Um, We are out at the bus stop, which is the end of our driveway, um, waiting for the school bus. And like I said, we pray for our boys as they leave each day. We usually do that in the house, but this one day we were rushing a bit. And so out in the driveway, Kim called the boys together to pray for their day. And being the incredible witness that she is, she asked our neighbor if she and her son wanted to join us in that prayer. And so they did. And we prayed together for the boys' day. And I honestly believe that the relationship between my wife and the woman down the street changed that day. They asked us about churches in the area that we'd recommend, and God is at work there. Prayer can truly awaken something in people. It often does. Um, But it's not always going to go that well. I understand that. I get that. Uh, Last spring, we had a, a soccer game one Saturday morning, and we gave one of the kids on the team a ride home with us. Uh, he's a good friend of our two older boys, and, and so we had picked him up that day as well. His parents couldn't get him to the game. And we invited him to join us at McDonald's after the game. So we arrived, and we sat down to lunch, and of course, we prayed for our meal. And I told our boys to fold their hands and close their eyes, and we started to pray. Well, their friend totally freaked out. <laughs> he had no idea what was happening and so his response to me asking the boys to close their eyes and fold their hands was to put his hands straight up in the air and open his eyes as wide as he could and that's the way he sat through our prayer it was it was really funny i had a terribly hard time not laughing at him but they're still good friends it didn't ruin anything in fact one of our boys is going to sleep over at his house tonight And we're starting to develop a a relationship, a friendship with his parents. Remember that prayer can open doors in the relationships in your life. It can. Whether it's well received or not, take the chance and offer someone your prayers when they're facing something difficult. God can use that to open a door in their lives that may have been closed for a very long time. I've heard a lot of stories about that very thing here at this church. People are often looking for hope, especially when it seems there's nothing that anyone can do. An offer of prayer speaks of hope. Give that hope to the people that you know. You don't have to stand up in the middle of the office where you work and launch into some pharisaical prayer show. In fact, don't ever do that. 
But a quiet offer of prayer can go a long ways. A note handed to someone after work expressing concern and offering prayer can be used by God to save a life. Don't hold back the hope that we have when you can offer it through prayer. This morning, to close out this series, what I want to do is go back with you to where we started this series. Uh, For me, the secret to having an authentic experience of prayer will always be my understanding of who God is and who I am in relation to him. I know that outside of the context of a relationship with my father, prayer will not be for me what it's meant to be. If I forget that God is my father and I am his son, my prayers will very quickly slip back into the realm of ritual. And don't get me wrong, there's some value in prayer as ritual, but there's far more value in prayer as a relational conversation with God. In John 17, Jesus was clearly talking to his father. That's obvious. There was a deep relationship at the heart of everything Jesus said in that prayer. When he prayed for others, Jesus prayed that they would experience what he had with his father in the context of their relationship. And even when giving a brief lesson on prayer in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus taught his disciples to see God as their father. And so for me, it's impossible to miss the relational aspect of prayer, which can be absent in ritualistic prayers. I want that kind of intimacy. I want that kind of experience. I want prayer to be the point in every day when I am most aware of God's presence. I want to come to him as a child comes to his father. And so that's where I want us to focus here for the next little while. As I put this message together, I had in mind a a picture of a father and his child. And that picture led me to see something simple that I'll put into practice in my prayers now. Here's what I saw. I saw my boys running to me as their dad. I love it when they run to me. And I can imagine that God loves it when we run to him. So I reflected on that image for a while. Um, There are various reasons why my boys run to me. Sometimes it's to share some good news with me. Sometimes it's to to share something really hard with me. Sometimes they run to me when they get off the bus after school. Sometimes they run to me when I get home from work and they're genuinely happy to see me. Sometimes they run to me when they've been hurt. Whatever the reason, I love it when they run to me. That brings me joy like I can't possibly describe. I mean something to them as their father and they are free to run to me. But I've recognized a bit of a pattern when they run to me. Um, This isn't the case every time, but it helped me see the thing that I want to share with you from the Bible this morning. Let me give you an example. Uh, Asher is our six-year-old, the youngest of our three sons. Without question, he gets in trouble more than our other two sons combined right now. He's having a hard time obeying. He forgets what we say in a matter of seconds, and he ends up getting in trouble for something that we've just told him not to do. Uh, If you're one of his Sunday school teachers, you know what I'm talking about. The boy has a heart of gold, but he really knows how to get caught up in the moment and doesn't consider the consequences of what he does. Um, Asher knows that this is true. He's got this figured out. And so he comes up to me the other day. He stands in front of me and bursts into tears. And these are the words that come out of his mouth. I'm sorry, Dad. I'm a bad boy. 
All I ever do is get in trouble. And let me make something really clear here. We don't ever tell our sons that they're bad boys. God has given us a critical role in shaping our son's sense of identity. If Asher believed that I thought he was a bad boy, he wouldn't have come to me in the first place. He carried on sobbing and expressing how bad he feels for the things that he's done. But I didn't let him talk for very long because the things that he was saying about himself just weren't true. So we moved into phase two of our encounter. I grabbed him and I pulled him as close as I could get him. I just hugged him for a while. He needed that. And fathers, let me address you for a second. If you're not expressing that kind of love and affection to your son or daughter, if you're not hugging them, you better start today. Hug your sons and daughters. They need to know the security that comes with a hug. So after hugging it out for a while, Ash and I moved into phase three. And for the next few minutes, I looked him in the eye and I told him what was really true about himself. This was not the time to talk with him about his mistakes. This was the time for me to restore his image of himself. I told him how much I love him and how much God loves him. I told him about his value and how he was created in God's image. I brought him back to a place of understanding who he really is. I did whatever I could to build him up to restore and redeem what was happening for him at that moment. Now, I am not a perfect father. I do not always get this right. Wish I did, but it doesn't happen. I'm often too hard on my kids. I often let my emotions, especially my anger, dictate how I'm going to respond to my sons. I will even deny them what they really need emotionally when I'm too selfish or too distracted. But through my imperfections, God is teaching me about his perfection as my father. He doesn't make the mistakes I do as a father. He gets it right every single time. And that perfection is what ought to draw every single one of us to him in prayer. Now, the three stages in my encounter with Asher were like this. Number one, he comes to me and I hear whatever it is that he has to say. Happy, sad, frustrated, jealous, angry, whatever. It doesn't matter. He comes to me and I listen as often as I can get past my own stupid obstacles. He knows he can come to me. And what he has on his heart, no matter what it is, I will be there for him. Secondly, we embrace. I give him a hug. I let him know that everything's going to be all right. I try to just take on whatever emotion it is that he's experiencing at the moment and just let him know that he's in a secure place in my arms. And thirdly, I do what I can to redeem his perspective. I speak truth to him. I encourage him. I build him up. I affirm for him whatever it might be that we may be celebrating at that moment. That's our experience, mine and Asher's. And I believe that can be our experience with our eternal father as well. Now let me show you where this really connected with me as I reflected on some passages in the Bible. Um, There's one particular person who's a very prominent figure in this story, and his name is David. 
And I think he can teach us so much about prayer. I want to lead you to three words that David uses in the Psalms and show you how those three words relate to my experience as Asher's father. We're going to take a quick tour through several Psalms. So get your Bible in front of you and be ready to do some turning. Um, You might even want to highlight or underline or somehow make note of the places that we'll visit. I've met many people who pray using the Psalms. And so today may be the day that you start that practice in your own life. Let's start with Psalm 18, verse 2. Psalm 18, verse 2. Go there now and we'll go from there. Psalm 18, verse 2. And this is what David says. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. My God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield, and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. Now let me challenge you right there to try starting your prayers by reading this verse out loud. If anything can get you in the right frame of mind to pray, this is it. Listen to the descriptive words David uses. Rock, fortress, deliverer. Refuge, shield, horn of salvation, and stronghold. That's our Father. That's our God. More on that in a few minutes. Turn then to Psalm 19, verse 14. And I'm going to go through these passages pretty quickly, but they'll also be up on the screen if you miss me saying any of the references or just want to quit and and just look. That's fine. Psalm 19, 14. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. And there are three words that I want to reflect on right now. And the first two were in Psalm 18.2. The third is here in Psalm 19.14. And the words are rock, refuge, and redeemer. Rock, refuge, and redeemer. These are the three words that David uses that connect my picture of God with my experience as a father. The first word is rock. David refers to God as my rock. Now, I've mentioned before here that I I worked for a while on a seismic crew, an oil exploration crew up in northern Canada when I was 20 years old. Uh, It was a very physical job that involved me uh, walking about 15 to 20 miles a day and hauling around a lot of equipment as we were walking. And it took its toll on every single one of us. Uh, We would finish a shift, which was usually about 14 hours long, and we would be exhausted, just spent. The very last shift that I worked on that job was the one that broke the camel's back, so to speak. Uh, We worked for 32 hours. No sleep during that time. One break to go back to our camp and get some more food before getting back to it. We had a deadline that we had to meet. And so we worked a 32-hour shift to get the job done. We started that shift before the sun came up. As we worked, we watched the sun rise and then set and then rise again. And we were still working. Now that does something to a person. Um, A not very pleasant something. And as the second sunset came upon us, every guy on the crew, myself included, wandered off briefly into the surrounding forest to express their feelings to the trees. I remember the tree that I chose to work things out on. (laughs) 
After a barrage of verbal and physical abuse to the tree, I took a deep breath. I thanked the tree. I apologized to the tree. And I got back to work. And you know what? That tree wasn't phased a bit. It didn't budge. It just took whatever I had brought to it in my messed up state of mind. That tree at that moment was my rock. David referred to God as his rock. Whatever was going on in his life, David brought it to God. Because David knew that God was not going to be rattled. He knew that his father would be a rock for him and not move. We read Psalm 18:2 Later in that same chapter, in verses 31 and 46, David again referred to God as his rock. He said, who is a rock except our God? And he said, the Lord lives and blessed be my rock. Go to Psalm 28, verse 1. Psalm 28, verse 1. Things change a little bit here. David says, to you, O Lord, I call. My rock, be not deaf to me, lest if you be silent to me, I become like those who go down to the pit. Different tone for David here. He's not praising this time. He's pleading. He's asking God to listen to him. Now go to Psalm 31, verse 2. 31, verse 2. You'll see it again. David's pleading for God to rescue him. He says, incline your ear to me. Rescue me speedily. Be a rock of refuge for me. A strong fortress to save me. David brought all kinds of emotion to God. I know I've been caught up sometimes thinking that David only brought these worshipful, beautifully thought out poems to God. But that's just not true. David brought it all to God. In the seminar on prayer that I attended last year, the speaker pointed this out and, and I saw it maybe for the first time. God, our rock, can handle anything that we bring to him. And he won't move. He won't move. Turn to Psalm 88. Psalm 88. Let's take a look at that delightful poem. The first seven verses. This one won't be up on the screen. This, this psalmist has a very different tune for God. Psalm 88. The first seven verses. O Lord, God of my salvation... I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. For my soul is full of troubles and my life draws near to Sheol. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am a man who has no strength. Like one set loose among the dead. Like the slain that lie in the grave. Like those whom you remember no more. For they are cut off from your hand. You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all your waves. Recently, I was talking to someone on the phone, uh, not somebody from this church. And as they poured out their anguish to me because their life was falling apart. They expressed their confusion about God because they knew that they weren't allowed to talk to him like this. 
like the psalmist in Psalm 88. Um, read the rest of the psalm sometime, by the way. It's an angry psalm. It's a psalm of lament. It is an honest cry to God. And we need to receive the fact that prayers like that are welcomed by God. He invites us to come to him in all honesty because he is our rock. He cannot be moved. His love for us is steadfast. He will receive all of our prayers and his view of us will not change. There is no need for us to keep certain emotions away from God, away from our father. At the seminar that I attended, the speaker invited us to try a prayer of lament. He gave us time and and we had paper to write one out on. But I sat skeptically while the others attempted to write. I was far too mature in my mind to lament, especially to God. I'd always seen that as whining. Well, halfway through our time to complete the exercise, I got bored. And so I started to write. And I soon became aware of the noise I was making as my pen slammed into my paper in a fit of honesty. I was overwhelmed with a sense of peace that came over me after venting to God for a few minutes. He took it all and he never budged. It opened a new door in me. me. I became less afraid of him and more in love with my father in heaven. He let me come to him. He let me come to him. Listen, whatever you're facing, whatever you're going through, bring it to your father. He is your rock. He cannot be moved. He will take your praise and your pain. Are you angry? Go to your rock. Are you sad? Go to your rock. Afraid? Go to him. Worried, thankful, tired, encouraged, on cloud nine or in the pit of despair. Run to your rock. He will not be shaken. His love for you will never, ever change. Just tell him about it. Just talk to him. He is your father. He is our rock. God is my rock, the one that I can go to with any and all of my emotions. He is also my refuge. He is my refuge. These two words are paired up in many places in the Psalms. Look at Psalm 62, verse 7. I'm going to fly through a few here for a minute. Psalm 62, verse 7. Says this, on God rests my salvation and my glory. My mighty rock, my refuge is God. Now go to Psalm 71, verse 3. 71, verse 3. Be to me a rock of refuge to which I may continually come. You have given the command to save me, for you are my rock and my fortress. And there they are again. God is our rock and he's our refuge. In Psalm 94, 22, the psalmist refers to God as the rock of my refuge. And then in Psalm 16, verse 1, 16, verse 1, David writes, Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. In Psalm 28, 8, he refers to God as as his strength and saving refuge. And look at Psalm 59, verse 16. 59, 16. This verse ties the term refuge with the experience that we find in that place of refuge. 
Psalm 59, 16 says, but I will sing of your strength. I will sing aloud of your steadfast love in the morning. For you have been to me a fortress and a refuge in the day of my distress. We all need a place to go when we need to know that we are loved. That's what a child needs to experience in the arms of their father. My sons need to experience that hug that tells them that I love them. I need to experience the refuge of God's arms where he tells me that he loves me. Now, I have a good dad, but he couldn't meet that need that I have for perfect love. Only God can meet that need. Only God. And he does. In him, I am loved. I am safe. I am secure. He is my refuge. And let me step outside the Psalms for just a moment to remind you of something. This is the truth that we all need to return to again and again and again. And this truth can be experienced in the arms of our Heavenly Father. Remember this statement from 1 John 3, 1. John writes, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. So we are. We are children of God. And that's our refuge. We are God's children. And we can find refuge in the loving arms of our Father. Your father loves you, Chapel Hill. Your father loves you. Remember that. Come to him with whatever is on your heart. He is your rock and he will not be shaken. He is your refuge where you'll experience what it is to be loved. Run to him and let him embrace you. His love is perfect. And in him you are secure. He is our refuge. He accepts what's on our hearts. He embraces us with his loving arms. And then he redeems us. He redeems us. Thinking back to Psalm 1914, David referred to God as his rock and his redeemer. Then in Psalm 7835, we see this word again. Psalm 7835. It says, they remembered that God was their rock, the most high God was their redeemer, their redeemer. Our father redeems us. He brings us back from bondage to freedom. He brings us back from lies to truth. He brings us back from despair to hope. He brings us back from sorrow to joy. He exchanges death for life. He exchanges dark for light. He restores our identity, our joy, our peace, our perspective. Our father is our redeemer. He picks us up and puts us on our feet again. In Psalm 23, David says, he restores my soul. He takes our burden upon himself and replaces it with his lightness. And that word redeemer is one of those bottles in the river bank that I was talking about last week. Um, one of these days we'll go on an adventure to uncover the redeemer bottle. There's so much rich heritage to this word, especially for the people of Israel. But for today, I'm talking about the aspect of our Father making us acceptable again. He takes care of our faults. He reclaims us as the true people that we were created to be, that he created us to be. My son came to me with a burden of guilt 
And I did what I could to free him from that burden and restore in his mind the right image of himself. Our father does this for us on a much greater level. He is our redeemer. He has brought us back from death with the price of his son. So he doesn't want us living in darkness and death anymore. He wants to bring us back to our place in his light. Wrapped in his love, affirmed by his truth, guided by only his spirit, standing in his strength. And he, as our redeemer, is the only one who can get us there. Who is God to you? Who is God to you? Is he your rock? Is he your refuge? Is he your redeemer? This is truth that we absolutely need to live by. God invites us to come, to run to him. He longs for us to see him as our rock. He cannot be moved. God beckons us to seek him as our refuge. In his unconditional love is the safest, most secure place where we can be. And our Father promises to redeem us. We can't do that for ourselves. He's already done it. Our Father has redeemed us and will restore that truth in us when we come to him in prayer. Now, after all is said and done in a series on prayer, the only thing that's left is to do it, right? To do it. Pray, Chapel Hill. Pray, pray without ceasing. Meet your father in prayer. He's waiting for you. Please do not come away from this series having only increased your knowledge about prayer. Pray. If all you got out of this was a new app for your phone, then I failed. My hope for you is that you pray. Pray more frequently, pray more faithfully. Pray more fervently. Pray. Your father is waiting for you. Your perfect loving father wants to spend more time with you. Acceptance is waiting for you. Love is waiting for you. Restoration is waiting for you. Your father is waiting for you. Run to him. Seek him like a child seeks his father. Pray, just pray. I'm going to invite the ushers to come now. And Sue, if you'll come to lead us in our last song. Let's do that right now. Let's pray together while they do. Our Father in heaven, we are amazed once again, by who you are. And we declare again this morning that you are our rock, you are our refuge, and you are our redeemer. We acknowledge that whatever we bring to you, whatever state we're in, you will not be moved. You cannot be shaken Because you are our rock. You accept us the way that we are. 
you welcome us the way that we are. And I pray that you would help us to get over whatever it is that's keeping us from coming to you honestly in the midst of whatever it is we're going through. Remind us again this morning that you cannot be moved, you cannot be shaken, that you are our rock and that we can come to you no matter what. And God, help us to come to you first. Not to try and work it out before we get to you. Thinking that we have to be a certain way, that we have to be in a certain state before we come to you in prayer. Help us to remember to come to you first. Because you're the only rock that we have. There is no other rock. Father, we thank you for the the unconditional love that you have for us. That your arms are open wide and that you will embrace us. And in the security of that, that embrace, you will... You will tell us how much you love us. You will remind us of our value to you. You'll remind us of the fact that we were created in your image and that you love us absolutely, totally, unconditionally, without limit. You love us. And remind us again, Father, that you are our Redeemer. When we come, will you put us back on our feet? Will you restore our wisdom, will you restore our perspective? Will you restore our understanding? Will you remind us of the fact that you have already paid the price to make us clean and whole? You are our redeemer. You are our rock and our refuge and our redeemer. And we declare right now that there is nothing that stands in our way of coming to you in prayer and experiencing who you are, being reminded of who we are, being forgiven, being comforted, being encouraged. All of this is there if we will just go, if we'll just run to you and accept what you have to offer. Father, we love you for who you are. We love you for so many reasons, but because you first loved us, that ought to just bring us to you. Lord, teach us to pray, to come to you as a child to their father. And may this not be just an accumulation of information or understanding, but may this be a turning point for us individually and as a church when we understand you and experience you more fully than we ever have as our Father. We pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus, our heir.